Hi y'all, I'm Marisa Zapata, and this is the podcast where we examine homelessness by talking to researchers and experts, who of course include people with lived experience of homelessness, to understand what we're missing in the headlines and sound bites. In each episode, we will help clear up misconceptions about homelessness and to answer what it would take to prevent and end homelessness in Portland and beyond. I'm an associate professor of land use planning at Portland State University and director of PSU's Homelessness Research and Action Collaborative, a research center dedicated to reducing and preventing homelessness, where we lift up the experiences and perspectives of people of color. In this episode, we talk with researcher Molly Richard, a student of Vanderbilt University, Sam Carlson, manager of research and outreach at Chicago Coalition for the Homeless, and Adrika Fulford, a community organizer with lived experience of doubled up homelessness. Their work has helped communities better understand invisible homelessness, those living doubled up out of economic necessity. We dedicate this episode to Adrika, who died shortly after this recording. Those who knew her said that Erika brought immense passion and resolve to all that she did as a leader and advocate. Whether speaking at rallies, testifying at press conferences, officiating events, or providing interviews with the media, she would be deeply missed and forever part of Chicago Coalition for Homelessness mission and legacy. Welcome, everyone. I am thrilled to say that today we're going to be hearing from some really smart people talking about amazing campaign work in Chicago to get dedicated funding, homelessness. But as a part of that project, some really great deep dives into the nerd world of how to estimate doubled up populations and why that count actually really matters to addressing homelessness. So I'm going to have everyone introduce themselves Adrika, would you like to introduce yourself? Did I get your name correctly? Yes, you did, which is a shocker. <laughs> My name is Adrika Fulford, and I am a grassroots leader slash outreach assistant with the Chicago Coalition for the Homeless. Awesome. Thank you. Molly. Hi, my name is Molly Richard. I use she or they pronouns, and I'm in Providence, Rhode Island now, but I'm a graduate student in community research and action at Vanderbilt University. Sam, what about you? Hi, everyone. My name is Sam. I use he, him, his pronouns. I'm currently the manager of research and outreach at Chicago Coalition for the Homeless. At CCH, I support the Homelessness Data Project, which is an initiative that aims to develop a better model for enumerating homelessness, a model that includes people doubling up. Awesome. All right. Well, can y'all tell me about the coalition? Like, who are you? What are you doing? Why is Chicago interesting for this work? Well, the Chicago Coalition for the Homeless has been around for 40 years now. It was started in 1980, and its main mission is to organize and advocate to prevent and end homelessness. We at CCH believe that housing is a human right in a just society. Sadly, too many people have to endure the trauma of experiencing homelessness and do not have enough advocates to work with them. Sam, do you want to add anything to that? Yeah, uh, we have uh, different areas of work at the local, state, and federal level. And I think what um, makes uh, CCH unique is that we have law department organizing and policy all working together, advocating for more resources that ultimately end homelessness in Chicago and in the state. Also, y'all have like data people doing things, which I think is just exemplifies What I hear or what I imagine is the best practice, right? You've got people doing the grassroots work. You have the lawyers who can scare people. And then you've got the data to actually back it up. Yeah, I might be biased, but I think it's a fantastic model. (laughs) I mean, it sounds exciting to me. Let me know if you're hiring. It sounds great. And all the things that I dream of, at least, of how you would actually create a good organization and excellent work to advocate for people. Um, So what about this particular project? Well, this project is called Bring Chicago Home, the project that I'm currently in love with. 
And what it is, is that we're trying to get a dedicated revenue stream and wrap around services for permanent supportive housing. We believe that permanent supportive housing is the actual best model for prevention and from people re re-entering homelessness. In a nutshell, I won't go into the, the, the nuts and bolts of it, but what we have, what we're trying to do is change the real estate transfer tax, which is a tax that already exists and for properties over a million dollars. And so if we get them to do that, then but the city council has to pass an ordinance and then referendum, it's, it's a lot. <laughs> so, but that's it in a nutshell. We can get that done. We can dedicate that dedicated revenue stream so that it won't be subject to budget cuts or a new administration or anything like that. We want some money to come in every year in the budget for us. So we've um, been pretty fortunate in the Portland metro area. And so for listeners who are based in the Portland area, we do have these dedicated funding streams now. So we've got two, if you're in the city of Portland, we have two funds that are dedicated specifically to affordable housing only. So affordable housing development or acquisition. And then we've got one affordable housing project that encompasses our entire tri-county area. And then most recently, and what's been in the news most is what is called our supportive housing services measure. And that is a dedicated funding stream to supportive services and prevention for people experiencing homelessness, particularly in the area for permanent supportive housing. So it can be done, but um, the power of having that kind of dedicated funding is amazing. One of the things I was hoping y'all could talk about since you invoked the permanent supportive housing phrase is what is permanent supportive housing to y'all? I was talking with some colleagues in Los Angeles, and I found this in um, some research here in Portland, that there isn't actually a shared definition across programs. And so when y'all are talking about PSH, what are you imagining? Sure. Uh, Yeah. So as part of the Bring Chicago Home campaign, we have a housing solutions think tank that's thinking through what permanent supportive housing could look like, uh, coming to a definition on this. And generally speaking, it's a housing subsidy with supportive services. What those look like is, is determined by providers, community members that are at this table, thinking through what that could look like, whether it's supporting programs that fall under HUD or the Department of Family and Support Services, or if it takes a different route, if it supports a housing subsidy program that that will start from scratch when this is passed, it's uh, we're determining what that looks like right now. But generally speaking, it's a housing subsidy, a permanent housing subsidy with supportive services. This is one of the reasons why it is so important and that CCH is so unique because we have people like me, grassroots leaders, who are at the table offering our lived experience to put in, like, how can you help somebody if you've never really experienced it? You know what I mean? And so that's a great, that's what makes CCH very unique. Yeah, I mean, I love that because it is what I found, too, is what supportive services look like or mean, particularly across racial groups, varies pretty dramatically. And so without people at the table to actually say, here are what services are and what we need, the effectiveness goes down quite a bit. I was just really curious if you all are seeing the field is further ahead and figuring out what that means and having sort of consistency across it for individuals, but maybe less so for families and households need higher supports. Uh, Or different ones, at least, right? So in a project we just evaluated, we were, you know, the idea of tutoring being part of a suite of services isn't necessarily or likely to happen if you're just talking about individual adults or couple of household adults. And so obviously with kids, being able to have access to tutors becomes a very different component of a service package. Um, so why does having a dedicated funding stream matter? I think that you you mentioned the importance of not having to go ask for money every year. Are there other reasons why having a dedicated funding stream uh, are important to you? Well, one of the other reasons is specifically for the fact that we know we can count on this and budget accordingly. And additionally, it's not subject to whims of a new administration. Um, and, you know, here in Chicago, one can't be sure about administration. So that is a definite plus for us. I mean, it's honestly no different here. It just seems like it's happier. 
All right. Well, so let's talk about the um, the component that you're bringing in data for. What are you thinking about? Like, what is the importance of data in this kind of campaign work? How is it helping inform the work that you're doing? And, and why the inclusion of doubled up as part of this? Well, I'll, I'll let Sam speak to the data part, but for doubled up, it is one of the reasons why the city of Chicago reports a very low number of people experiencing homelessness because they don't include doubled up. And as everybody who, like myself, who has been doubled up, um, know that that is a form of homelessness, even though HUD doesn't recognize it yet. Being, living on somebody's couch or couch surfing or, you know, uh, somewhere you can automatically get put out at any moment, that is really a hard, hard existence over a period of time. And then let's draw COVID into the mix where people just got really paranoid and did not want you at their house. You know what I mean? So that's a big deal. But Sam can speak to the um, the numbers and votes. I'm just out there. <laughs> yeah, so generally speaking, homelessness describes a situation where someone lacks a fixed, regular, and adequate nighttime residence. But That's only according to the U.S. Department of Housing and Urban Development. But what is fixed, regular, and adequate, it depends on who you ask. Mm-hmm. So the Department of Education acknowledges that homelessness isn't linear. Most people experiencing homelessness stay wherever they can, often forced to move frequently between unstable living situations, uh, sleeping in motels, cars, trains, or temporarily staying with others. And we see that in school data. During the 2019-2020 school year, only 11% of Chicago students experiencing homelessness were staying in a shelter. Temporarily staying with others is the way that most people, particularly families with children, experience homelessness. And like you said, the Department of Housing and Urban Development has a far more limited scope of homelessness. HUD requires that someone have a nighttime residence that's either a shelter or a place not meant for human habitation uh, to be considered homeless. And, And people that are couch surfing due to economic hardship, loss of housing, or domestic violence are, for the most part, not aided in HUD's definition of homelessness. So you're telling me our own federal government has two definitions of homelessness. That's exactly right. Yes. Sounds like it makes things a lot easier for everyone. (laughs) Hashtag sarcasm. (laughs) (laughs) Molly, it looked like you wanted to jump in and add something. Uh, Well, I I was just going to maybe start by uh, sharing, you know, how I um, got connected with Sam and CCH was I was a member of the Homeless Planning Council's data committee in Nashville. And similarly, you know, they were thinking, how do we help our community realize that we need to scale the resources to the problem? And right now, the way that we're estimating the problem is through a really flawed methodology of just the point in time count. And I think you have other episodes that get into that and I don't want to get into it right now, but advocates and service providers and people experiencing homelessness in Nashville knew that the numbers that were in reports or in the news and that were being used to um, dedicate resources were really underestimating the problem. And someone on that committee brought in Chicago Coalition for the Homeless 2016, I think, report that started to use the American Community Survey data to estimate doubled up homelessness. And I was a new budding graduate student looking for projects and was focused on families and still am in knowing that even, you know, when families are experiencing shelter, unsheltered homelessness, that they're less visible. The idea of using other data was really exciting to me. And so I reached out to Sam and Julie at CCH and we started working together on sharing our skills and coming up with a more replicable and rigorous way to measure doubled up homelessness using this publicly available data so that not just Chicago and not just Nashville could spend some time doing this, but then we could share it out with other communities who are interested and similarly saying, okay, let's not scale the definition of the problem to the resources that we have, but really be honest with ourselves about the extent of homelessness and housing insecurity in the country and in our communities and then ask for what we need. I'm really excited to take the methodology that y'all have worked on and look at how it plays out in relationship to some real like back of the envelope estimating that we did here. We literally just took, we used an annualized factor for the point in time count. The point in time count data is our one night 
either annual or every other year count that is mandated by the U.S. Department of Housing and Urban Development, where we are supposed to do a quasi-census style count of everyone experiencing homelessness, again, based on the HUD definition, right? So people who are living in shelter, transitional housing, or unsheltered, um, and that's that category of not fit for human habitation. And we took that, we did an annualizer for the unsheltered component. We used the annual assessment reports to do the shelter counts, deduplicated. Then we just took the Department of Ed counts for all of our school districts and put those numbers together to come up with a count to show the magnitude of difference. And so I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit about like what y'all have found with those magnitude of differences. Yeah, I can start by saying for the U.S., we estimated that around 3.7 million people were experiencing doubled up homelessness based on our definition, which is six times the number of unsheltered and sheltered homelessness identified by HUD's point in time count for 2019. And it's a little bit of a different point in time, not to use the same terminology, but the ACS is a rolling average. So it sort of describes the average characteristics of a year. So at any given time, there'd be around 3.7 million people experiencing doubled up homelessness. So that's a little bit more, I think, you know, useful than just, you know, looking at one single night in January. It takes into consideration, you know, different changes across the year. But yeah, that's the scale of the difference that we at least estimate based on our measure. And I can talk a little bit about like how we did that because the ACS doesn't ask, hi, you know, is there anyone in your household that's staying here because they can't afford to live anywhere else or they lost their housing and, you know, they're only here temporarily um, and otherwise would be in the street or in shelter if they weren't living with you. So we use some of the existing variables, like looking at the poverty level of all the household members, their relationship to one another, and in some cases, measures of overcrowding. So to basically say, if this person had the means to, would they likely be staying somewhere else? Which is, which is similar to what the Department of Education asks, right? So their question is, and I think it's framed around, if not for economic reasons, would you be living in this, what is defined as a doubled up situation? And, and it is, I think, that that very particular component of if basically if you had a different choice, would you be doing this if you had the financial resources? In um, Multnomah County in Oregon, we actually just adopted a doubled up standard definition for all of our resources and defined it as unsafely doubled up so that it would also get at people who are potentially breaking their leases, who they might want to actually be living together, but they actually economically can't afford to be in a bigger apartment. And so, you know, it's another way to add to some of those components. But let's back up because you started talking about ACS and poverty levels and all of these questions. And, you know, I think that it's very hard for the average person to, I mean, it's hard for me. Let's not even say like the average person. I look at this stuff all the time and I'm like, where are the definitions for all of these things again? So we've got, just to recap, we've got what's called the point in time count. And this is our every year, every other year count that is a census style that happens, well, is about one night of homelessness in that given year. Um, we have what are called our annual homelessness assessment reports, our AHARs, where you're going to be able to see people who were in shelter across the year and get those counts. And then Department of Education count, what is that? How does that happen? I can give my best description of it. And if anybody else correct me, I mean, one reason why I say it like that is because I think it might happen differently in different places, but ideally it's a cumulative count of uh, students who've experienced or been identified by school personnel as experiencing homelessness. And I've talked to people and say that most of the time that can start at the beginning of the year with paperwork going out, but it's also supposed to be an active sort of identification process where school personnel who are the McKinney-Vento liaisons are trained to keep out an eye for students who might be exhibiting signs of um, housing insecurity. And McKinney-Vento is the act that was done in the 1980s that set up our homelessness definitions and systems and, and um, ideas about what we would be doing. And so part of that mandate is that schools themselves have to provide services to students who are experiencing homelessness and they are entitled to particular services. Now, does this count like if you're thinking about doubled up, does that mean that you're only really getting at kids who are in schools between like K and through 12? 
Yeah, exactly. So the existing data would just be identifying K-12 children. So that misses anybody who's not in a family that doesn't have kids. And then also families with younger kids, which we know at least through HUD's own data that families experiencing homelessness are most likely to have children under the age of three, I think. And so it would significantly miss abortion of the of those families. Sam, can you talk a little bit about what that means in Chicago? Yeah, so in Chicago Public Schools in the 2019-2020 school year, there were 13,843 students that were students in temporary living situations. And uh, 12,100 of them were doubling up. So 12,000 of the 13,000 were doubling up. Comparing this to the other data points that we have available, in 2019, the point in time count was just over 5,000. And uh, we know this isn't uh, reflecting the total scope of homelessness. When comparing it to the STLS data, the students in temporary living situations data, and uh, comparing it to uh, how many people are accessing homeless services throughout the course of the year. What was so that, first, t- that last data thing you said? The student... Students in temporary living situations, that's okay, the, that? the McKinney-Bento program okay, all right. for Chicago Public Schools. Yeah. In 2019, over the course of the year, more than 22,000 people accessed homeless services. So I, I think comparing the point in time count to the McKinney-Bento data and the data on people accessing homeless services throughout the course of the year kind of illustrate that the point in time count is has serious limitations, and there are better alternatives. Yeah, this is similar to the scale difference that we found, right? For We used 2017 data, and it was, I think it was 5,500 or 6,000 people had been unsheltered across the year in the Portland region. And then when we looked at all the other data sources, we got up to 40,000. Okay, so then, Molly, you started talking about like ACS and census and all these other things. So what are the other data sources that we can actually start to glean information from? So for our project, we used uh, publicly available American Community Survey data, which is a nationally representative survey that the census puts out uh, when it doesn't have the the full count census. And so you can actually download de-identified data sets of individuals, how they answered this survey. And so we did that and used our sort of shared understanding of who we thought might be considered doubled up to estimate the number of people in different communities. What's cool about the ACS, when we think about homelessness data, I think in comparison to some of the other measures we have is that we can look at smaller geographies too. So that became really interesting when we were also looking at- What do you mean by smaller geographies? Yeah. So like when we were thinking about what's going on with homelessness in rural areas, a lot of folks, at least like in some qualitative research and advocacy spaces do talk about doubled up homelessness as one of the ways that it manifests more so than sheltered, maybe because there aren't shelters in the area or because uh, there's more housing for people to take people in. But a lot of the rural areas are aggregated for HUD's accounts into a really large quote unquote balance of state continuum of care geography, which I know is like really jargony, but often you'll look at a map and it's like, okay, that's most of Oregon. Uh, that's like the whole literally most of Oregon geography yeah (laughs) yeah so there's one number for the number of people experiencing homelessness at least for in terms of the accessible data that we have like to download from HUD I'm sure you know agencies or communities might have a little bit more understanding of the extent of homelessness that's going on there but like if you're trying to put something on a map as a researcher you've got that number but for the ACS there's smaller uh, geographies that I say that because they're not cities or towns or neighborhoods or census tracts, but they're called public use microdata areas. So it's the extent of an area where, okay, the census felt comfortable enough giving you this information and you can't identify who it is. It's 100,000 people. So that helped us look, for example, at, I can give you some data related to South Dakota because I have it up here, but South Dakota, the doubling up rate. So the percent of people who we identified as experiencing doubled up homelessness in the state was 1%, uh, which was like a little bit less than the national rate. But when we looked at the Lakota region, Huma, that public use microdata area, the rate was 5% of the population. So that's 
that's a lot. And I think it went up to when you look at the percent of people in poverty, some communities were up to like 15% of those folks were experiencing doubled up homelessness by our definition. So I think there's a lot of possibility for using this national survey to look at different communities, data in a way that HUD's methodologies haven't necessarily allowed for. Do you know the history of that? Like, why does HUD not want to talk about doubled up in this way, right? Because they're obviously serving people who are doubled up in a different portfolio. So why is this kind of rigid definition there? If you know, I actually know the answer, Molly, but it's fine. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I'm definitely excited to hear what your answer is. Mine would be that it would, you know, there's limited government resources to address homelessness. And the definition is based on eligibility for services and trying to think both, okay, how do we define the issue so we know who to prioritize our resources for when we don't have enough? And also, how do we measure this in a way that feels like it's an attainable goal to end when we think about ending homelessness? So I think there's a lot of different perspectives on the nuances of uh, the HUD definition and, and advocates to end homelessness might disagree about it. But I think in general, it comes down to when we have limited, we don't have enough resources to, to fit the scale of the problem. What are some strategic ways that policymakers and providers have decided to try to, you know, rethink the problem to make it manageable? I always refer to this as like the poverty Olympics games, right? Because, you know, if you look at even some of the assessment tools that we use in homelessness, you literally get more points if you are considered more vulnerable based on a set of criteria, right? And so it's always like, we we are going to accept that we don't have enough resources and then figure out the ways to dole it out in uh, particular ways. Speaking of this kind of, you know, controversy between some of the advocates, this is obviously a big thing, whether you're going to talk about doubled up or not. I've seen it nationally. I've seen it locally. I'm wondering if the, y'all have been encountering this in Chicago or are most people team count everyone? Sam is laughing. I, I've certainly seen this to be a point of contention in other places that aren't Chicago, but I feel like CCH has done a really good job, not to pat the organization on the back, but We've done a really good job. Do it. uh, Like explain how this happens. (laughs) We've done a really good job at advocating for people doubling up to be included in uh, definitions of homelessness wherever possible. So our estimate was used in the COVID relief plan for Chicago, which felt like a huge win. And uh, CCH has been able to use our homeless estimate to advocate for new resources in Chicago. So the Families in Transition Program, or FIT, was one of these. FIT is a joint collaboration between the Department of Family and Support Services, Chicago Public Schools, and the HomeWorks uh, campaign. It addresses homelessness affecting children in Chicago Public Schools by connecting 100 homeless families to permanent supportive housing. Many of these families would have been ineligible for HUD assistance and the HomeWorks campaign has been able to advocate for housing resources to meet their needs. It's just 100 families, but it's certainly a start. I, I think it, people understand the, that homelessness isn't linear in Chicago. I've, I've seen in other places, though, it's a more contentious um, conversation. Yeah, it's been interesting in Portland. I definitely see the pendulum swing in the past seven years, right? So, you know, there was some contention and concern about adding doubled up into our local definition. A racial equity argument there was really important. And, you know, the, the decision to really prioritize racial equity and what what we call our culturally specific providers here, because we don't want to say like the non-white people serving non-white people, our cultural specific providers were saying, no, this is the thing, right? A lot of our people and the people we serve are doubled up. But as our unsheltered population has grown and the visibility of the unsheltered population, as Molly was saying, tends not to be families. In Portland, it tends not to be people of color. One, because there are just the, the, disproportion, the disproportionality is still there, but our literal numbers are much smaller. And also people of color, particularly people who are Black, are choosing to not be visible for their own protection. 
But as there have been an increased number of, of areas where people are living outside and in tents, we're now seeing the fight to say all of the resources should go to everyone sleeping in a tent outside and everyone else should have to wait. And of course, you know, people aren't understanding the challenges in that kind of framing, but it, it does go back and forth, I found. People like me who are living doubled up were not aware that that was actually a form of homelessness. And there was just something you did because you didn't have a place to stay. You know what I mean? So that's another barrier I think that we need to address as well. And that is to actually let people know, no, no, this is a form of homelessness. You know, let the public, the people experiencing it, because if I'm experiencing it and I don't know it, I'm sure the public, you know, who's not experiencing don't have a clue, you know, as to as to the true definition. This is such an important point. Go ahead, Molly. Oh, I just wanted to add that, you know, I think that is so important. And then I think Sam maybe had brought some experiences, uh, stories um, in a conversation we were having once where it was like for for that, for some people, it's also the experience that they they do feel like they're homeless and they're calling the, you know, coordinated entry to try to get assessed for homeless services. And they're saying, actually, no, you're not. You have to have slept in a shelter. Where did you sleep last night? And, you know, you know, if you give the answer, hey, hey, I I was actually so lucky to be able to stay with my friend last night, then you're not going to be on the list to be prioritized for services. So just that both of those experiences are are really important to think about. What Molly's referencing is that when you call, when you, you were trying to access homeless services, you were most likely, or in theory, at least, you should be connecting with what's called the coordinated access or coordinated entry system, which is where they're assessing people to try to decide, this is what I'd call the poverty Olympics, who has the most bad check marks to be able to end up on a list. I think this, this even question of how do we see ourselves in our positions of housing insecurity and homelessness is so important. You know, I have certainly found that as I talk to other Latinos or African-Americans or Native Americans, it, you know, I'll be like, no, no, no. Remember when like your friend's cousin's kid like didn't have a place to stay for two months and slept on your couch. And you're like, yeah, that's cool. That happened. I'm like, that person was homeless. <laughs> like, do you remember when you like had to go stay in a motel in between apartments for three weeks? That is a type of homelessness. And, you know, there's a stigma that goes with it, but it's also thinking about how we ask the questions as opposed to saying, are you homeless or have you been homeless? It's asking about the literal places where people have lived or slept or are being. And, and Molly, one of the things I thought was interesting was the questions that come from ACS are not about, are you homeless or are you housing insecure? There are other types of questions that you're using to get at these particular markers. And I'm wondering if you could talk about some of those particular questions. So we uh, looked at poverty, relationships within the household, and uh, levels of overcrowding. And so in terms of the exact questions, I'm not sure if I could tell you like this is how the questionnaire is worded. But one thing that we made sure to do was in terms of poverty was looking at housing costs adjusted poverty levels. So what does that mean? Yeah. So we were talking about how the federal guidelines for poverty are national, but housing costs vary so much across the country. And so in Chicago, you know, you might actually be above the poverty line technically um, in terms of the federal cutoff, but really, really cost burdened. And so we wanted to be able to have a conservative definition, but still make sure that we're including the people who are potentially housing insecure. And so we adjusted poverty to take into consideration what the median rent in a community is. Just to like give an example of how that would shape the definition, my, my aunt and my cousin live with my parents um, in, in my family home. You know, based on our definition in terms of who would be included just in terms of family relationships, you could consider my cousin doubled up. But because my parents are not near the poverty line, our definition wouldn't include them because it's likely that you know, their shared resources make the situation less temporary and less um, housing insecure. And so I think that's just important for people to understand, like, this is not just a measure of household sharing, but it was a pretty conservative attempt to say who is sharing in a household, but really likely to like, you know, if there's one sort of economic crisis, some folks in this household are going to be literally homeless. So this in some ways gets around this kind of visceral reaction I hear when I mentioned doubled up of like, 
recent college graduate student who's crashing on the couch or crashing in their childhood bedroom of their family that's making a million dollars. This yep. would eliminate them. Definitely not included. Everybody in our sort of estimate of double up homelessness is in or near poverty. And what, even if they were actually, the, a single adult child would not be included based on that sort of social science and cultural understanding that the household head is still responsible for this person. So they might be here for reasons other than economic hardship. So when you're talking about these familial relationships, like how are you dealing with cultural preferences in, in deciding what is considered an overcrowded household or an appropriate relationship where your cousin gets kicked out of the, the circle, right? Like how do you decide who's in the circle and who's out? So our measure does not take into consideration cultural preferences. It just doesn't. But I will tell you sort of circling back on what you were saying around the culturally responsive organizations advocating for doubling up being inclusive in Portland. Our data sort of backed that in the sense of the Latinx population, like the their share of the total population is about 19% of the country, 22% of those who are identified in the point in time count as literally homeless, so sheltered or unsheltered, but 38% of those who we identified as doubled up. So it does sort of give data backing to that, at least there, you know, there's data at the community level, but national level data for that understanding that a lot of Hispanic Latinx homelessness is manifesting as doubling up. One of the things that I've heard here that I really want to try to push back on is the idea that, you know, Latinos just prefer to live together in, you know, multi-generational households, or, you know, they just prefer to live together to, to save money, meaning it's they're totally fine having seven adult men in a two-bedroom apartment because that's just how they're trying to get by and distinguishing between a cultural survival strategy versus a cultural preference, right? And mm-hmm. so, you know, how does that start to show up? And Adrika, I don't know if you see some of that in Chicago playing out. Yes. And I was also going to mention, absolutely, people don't take into consideration the stigma, the cultural stigma of being self-identified as being homeless. If you ask me if I'm sleeping on my friend's couch, sure. But if you ask me if I'm homeless, don't know. No, you know what I mean? So that's a big deal. That's a, in, in my culture, that's a huge deal. We will not self-identify as being homeless. We will self-identify as sleeping on the couch for two years, but, but never, you know, experiencing homelessness. And that's because of the stigma that's involved with the percept, the public's perception of people who are experiencing homelessness. It's huge. I'll share just a few, you know, there are so many great researchers who focus on Latinx homelessness and I'll read one (laughs) quote from my paper because, or our paper, just because Susan Gonzalez Baker, I think was looking at this issue 20 years ago, 30 almost. And she wrote that these alternatives of necessity in terms of thinking about doubling up are no substitute for housing subsidies, tax and wage policies that bolster working class earnings, or aggressive anti-discrimination policies that open up new sectors of the labor and housing market that are still closed on the basis of race. And so she's basically you know, responding to that in 1996 saying, sure, people are doing like having this informal support network, this in- informal shelter providing family resource network, but that's not a substitute for structural change that oh, would allow people to, to live on their own if they wanted to. And then I think it's, Melissa Chinchilla also on the West Coast there had a paper where they were looking at barriers for shelter use among Latinx communities. And, you know, it's not just, okay, we have these other preference for how we deal with housing insecurity, but also where there are real reasons why folks are uh, fearful of going to shelter, whether it's they have mixed stock status groups in their family and fear of immigration enforcement, or there's really lack of language inclusivity. So lack of awareness of that communication materials that even show them where they could go and or when they're there not feeling safe because they don't understand the language and just sort of the way that the shelter system is designed in terms of separating based on gender. So all of these reasons that on the short term, you know, let's say we can't make changes to how we have the federal resources dedicated, but programs can sort of make their own like small changes to make shelter more accessible. Thank you. That was great. So I guess as we're wrapping up, I'm wondering how, like, tell me the life of a project like this, right? So like, how, how did the idea come to look at data? You know, is that coming from grassroots? Is that coming from the policy circles? Is it coming from the data people? 
And then once you get these kind of numbers, how is this then used to make cases for things? I believe it started with policy. I'm not sure, Sam, you'll have to speak to that. I do know that the grassroots leaders have um, gotten involved and due to lived experience, we've we've become aware again of uh, just the magnitude of the problem. We didn't even know, you know, even the person experiencing homelessness is not quite aware of the magnitude of the of the problem of homelessness in the city of Chicago. I'm not sure if this really answers your question, but it's something I really wanted to make sure to say. And I just think that there is more focus now, at least on the in the researcher side of things, which is where I'm coming from, on homelessness prevention and not just, you know, bailing out the water, but turning off the tap and stemming the tide. And one of those, one of the important ways I think to be thinking about all of the dialogue around definitions and doubling up is it's not really about pitting populations against each other because family homelessness is really, when we look at the research, it feeds into later adult chronic homelessness. And so when people experience homelessness as children, they're more likely to experience like that sort of unsheltered chronic homelessness as adults. And so it's just, if we want to really get to prevention and we do care about those people, those folks who are sleeping outside, then one way to do that is to focus on families. And that actually um, brings up a question. Does your measure get at adult doubled up who are yes. single and non-related? Okay. I just want to clarify that. It definitely does. And I think sometimes that's lost in the policy conversation. And I think, thank you. That's such, such a good point where so we all often are so focused on children and families because they are the ones who are most visible, even though they're not in terms of the hidden homelessness population and those experiencing doubled up because of advocacy in schools. Um, and so it's really important to start thinking about who are the folks who are couch surfing and doubled up. Sometimes that's unaccompanied youth, but also older adults who may not feel safe in shelter, don't have, you know, may not feel safe sleeping outside um, and do have the familial or social network resources to Adrika to your experience, but also feel like that is just like not the way to be living a healthy life and not to have the security that you deserve. And also that uh, that brings up a good point too, because a person like me, I fell through the cracks. I didn't have any small children. I wasn't a victim of domestic violence. I wasn't on substance abuse or anything like that. So I kind of fell through the cracks of the shelter system. And that's how I ended up doubled up. I think that's a super common story, right? It's that we we do prioritize. And so when we prioritize, there are certain people who get left out and that often ends up being single adults or adult couples. And so, and that's a choice that we make for a variety of reasons. Some that probably feel worse than others, but that's kind of the state of things. So Sam, talk to me about way of like, I'm thinking about this as like a life cycle. How does this come together? Molly touched on it a little bit, but yeah, the coalition recognized this as a data need back in 2016. And uh, we're so thankful for our partnership with Molly and her team and Heartland Alliance's Social Impact Research Center that that helped us think through this initially. And uh, this has been years in the making, and now this methodology is published, thanks to Molly. Um, and we've seen this measure of homelessness be successful in Chicago. So we're looking to expand it in other areas. So we launched the Homelessness Data Project, which aims to expand the use of this to other major cities in the states. So how do we get you to come work on it here? Or can I just like replicate it with the stuff in the methodology? Yeah, anyone can do it on their own. And uh, I'm about to go assign this to a student, by the way. So... <laughs> Please tell them to email me. Yeah, it's all, you know, it is, there's information on how to do it. And then we're also working on ways to have it be even more accessible, just download data sets. And I just want to add to to Sam's point, seeing how people have been using the numbers in Nashville and the conversations that I've had. It's not just about advocating for more dedicated resources to end homelessness once you've been experiencing it, but also to prevent it and to build more affordable housing, um, have new tenant protections and other sorts of prevention measures like rent control. You know, there's conversations in Nashville, people using the numbers to talk about here are the 
number of new units that we need at these affordable levels based on the extent of, of housing insecurity in, in the area. And so just bringing it back to like, yes, the homelessness response system needs to, to work well for people who are currently experiencing homelessness, but we also want to focus on prevention and some of those root causes. Yeah, and that's actually what we we use the numbers to drive to here, which was we're going to actually, in our housing needs analysis, use the numbers to estimate needed housing units or vouchers, yeah. right? It, this isn't about having the estimate be about how much shelter space you get. It's about actual mm-hmm. housing. So my last official question, and I'll, of course, invite y'all to share any last thoughts, is that, you know, one of the things I love this kind of methodology, this in-depth work, I think it's so powerful. Like I said earlier, we just did a back of the envelope estimate because we had to do a project in a hurry. And part of my rationale was that for the purposes of advocacy and public policy making, it didn't really matter if it was plus or minus 10,000 people, right? It matters in certain circles, but, you know, it doesn't matter at the end of the day if someone is saying 40,000 versus 50,000. It doesn't even matter in terms of if I'm looking at the overall cost of funding needed affordable housing, it's still a very small portion of a difference. And so I'm wondering what the motivation was to do this kind of in-depth analysis versus something that's a little bit more back of the envelope. Um, Well, I think at the end of the day now, we're hoping it feels back of the envelope because you could do it quickly. Um, We put some work in at the front end so that it will be easy to to use and so that everybody's back of the envelope notes and scribbles are the same, (laughs) just to keep using your metaphor. But I think, you know, yes, everybody could. There's so many different ways potentially to get at an estimate of this form of housing insecurity and homelessness. But if everybody's using a similar measure, then we can make some different comparisons, track changes over time, and maybe have a little bit more, you know, a little bit more backing for those folks who say, hey, we need the data and we need it to look a certain way. We don't want to always be catering to to those kinds of conversations, but when we have the the tools to do it and it can help move the needle with resources, I get excited with data. I do too. And it's this endless conversation I'm in is like, what is worth asking people to spend the time and resources on. And so that an advocacy group wanted this is particularly interesting to me for that reason. And so Adrika and Sam, I'm wondering if you have any thoughts about why a more robust methodology mattered to your work. I'm really not a numbers geek like a lot of people, but I do see where the numbers would help us on the ground, on the ground level. And so that is one reason why I am in such, such love with our program, our campaign, Bring Chicago Home, because it offers wraparound services and it will offer um, those policy people the chance to to work on getting the marriage between the two, the policy and, and, and the on the boots type working. You, that makes sense? Yes, it makes a lot of sense. Sam, do you have any thoughts about this? Yeah, our hope is that with a better understanding of the scope of the problem in Chicago, local groups can advocate for the resources to address all forms of homelessness and work collectively to broaden the federal definition of homelessness. We've heard from downstate and rural Illinois that the point in time count is the only measure that they have of homelessness. And though there are a lot of limitations to that, it's the only measure they have, and we're looking to change that at a, at another estimate to the mix. Awesome. Thank you. Well, do y'all have any other last thoughts, things that you want to share, make sure that people know about your work or about this project? I would just like to say Bring Chicago Home is a viable solution. We can make a difference and have people text 313131 to Bring Chicago Home. You got to say it. <laughs> We'll make sure to put links to your websites on the on the page that we have. Also take this opportunity for a plug to join our homelessness data project cohort. We're launching a cohort for advocacy organizations and uh, other advocates around the country to all do a homeless estimate together. It'll be a free seven-hour training on estimating 
Homelessness in the sessions will include definitions of homelessness, data understanding and preparation, I mean, data storytelling. And we're hoping that we can collaborate with these organizations across the country on a joint media release of the, the research findings to hopefully get national coverage and, and um, get the public eye on. Uh, I love this. Homelessness. Do you have an application out? You can go to the Chicago Coalition for the Homeless website in the Homelessness Data Project section of the website. There's a, a form you can fill out. Come one, come all, if you're interested. Let's I want to put the word out. I know a bunch of groups that would be super interested. Thank you. Molly, what about you? Oh, I just want to thank everybody for the conversation and, and CCH for working working with me. And I'll say, I guess, if, if you're not a community organization that would be eligible for working on that project with CCH, if you're an individual researcher and you want to nerd out with me on homelessness data, reach out. Well, thank y'all so much. This was amazing and so much fun. And y'all are doing such great work. And this is like the particular intersection of my personal passions. So it's really awesome. Thank you so much. Thank you for having us. That was researcher Molly Richard, a student at Vanderbilt University, Samuel Carlson, manager of research and outreach at Chicago Coalition for the Homeless, and Enrico Fulford, a community organizer with lived experience of doubled up homelessness, talking about their study using U.S. Census microdata to better estimate those living doubled up. We dedicate this episode to Enrico, who died shortly after this recording. Those who knew her said that Enrico brought immense passion and resolve to all that she did as a leader and advocate. Whether speaking at rallies, testifying at press conferences, officiating events, or providing interviews with the media, she would be deeply missed and forever part of Chicago Coalition for Homelessness Mission and Legacy.